It's the ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast. With your host, Kurt Squires. It's time to rock. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a very special episode of ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Squires, and along with my good friend and colleague, Greg Ferguson, we set out to look for those stories of extraordinary fans who've been particularly influenced by this extraordinary band. So how is our next guest influenced by one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time? Well, does it count if he was actually in the band? We thought so. We're talking about none other than ACDC drummer Chris Slade, who first joined the band back in 1989 and then went on to fill the drum seat again in 2014 for the band's first ever appearance opening the Grammy Awards, as well as playing on the Rocker Bust World Tour. For those of you who don't know, Greg and I decided to unearth these great ACDC Beyond the Thunder unreleased documentary interviews some with reskinned questions as I was never mic'd during the original filming, as well as inject all new interviews along the way from notable fans who look upon this band as a major influence in their lives. This particular interview with Chris takes place in between his tour of duty with ACDC, which has never been heard before until now. So without further ado, let's jump into this exclusive interview with the man who brought the thunder himself, Chris Slade. Chris, thanks so much for being here. So let's get back to where it all started. I think it's safe to say there's no other skin basher that can match your rock and roll resume. You've been in countless bands, some lesser known, some obviously very well known. But I'd have to say of all the groups you've sat behind the drum kit for, the best name outside of ACDC has to be the Squires. That's right, Kurt Squires. <laughs> um, yeah, we were, we were a few things. Uh, we started off actually as Tommy Scott and the Senators. Very, very good name. Um, then when we went to London and Tom became, Tommy Scott became, or Tommy Woodward became Tom Jones. And uh, we then became the Playboys and then we became the Squires. Don't ask me why, we did. So the band names just changed weekly or? Yeah, monthly anyway. But we ended up with the Squires, actually. What kind of music influenced you growing up? Uh, jazz, to be honest. Hmm. Um, started off listening to jazz. Of course, pop music, of course. Uh, radio Luxembourg was the big thing back then, uh, which was a radio station. It was probably the only one that played pop music. I would call it pop music now because it was in those days. Beatles and stuff like that. Even the Stones was pop music. Which drummers inspired you the most? Um, yeah, Buddy Rich, definitely. Uh, some people preferred Gene Krupa, but I always preferred Buddy Rich. Um, great player, wonderful player. I saw him live quite a few times. And then along came Tony Williams. Uh, many drummers will tell you those two names. Did you get a chance to meet those drum heroes? Yes, I did. Met Buddy and said hello and stuff, and uh, uh, met Tony very briefly in New York City once, uh, down in Greenwich Village, where I went to see him play. Uh, genius players, both of them. 
It took me many, many viewings of Buddy Rich to actually see what he was doing. Not, not be able to do it, but to actually see what he was doing. It's like, what the hell? How the hell does he do that? What is he doing? It took me years to work that out. You mentioned Tom Jones, who was another native Welshman. How did you hook up with him initially? Uh, my brother taught me to play drums, or a drum, marching drum. My brother Danny, who went to school with Tom, because uh, Tom's a bit older than me. You're older than me, Tom. <laughs> um, and uh, so they went to school together, but I never knew Tom in, in those early days. My father also was a tap dancer, and he worked with Tom in various concert parties when Tom was a young teenager. Hmm. Um, and he always had that great voice. Yeah. I remember my father coming back saying, this singer is tremendous, he's absolutely fantastic. And I said, no, he can't be as good as Tommy Steele, who was a, a huge British singer in those days. Can't be as good as Tommy Steele, otherwise he'd be on television. And he said, no, he's better than Tommy Steele. No, he can't be. <laughs> so you came from the same village as Tom Jones. You eventually joined his band, become hugely successful. You're traveling around the world. Uh, how long does that gig last? I, I played drums with Tom for seven years. Um, as I say, before he was Tom Jones and after he was Tom Jones. Um, and we did Vegas and, and various members of the Squires also did that. And I stayed with Tom about three years longer than any of the Squires. I think I finished in, it was 1963 to 1970, I was with him. The first real success came in 1965 when It's Not Unusual was recorded. It became an international hit, reached number one in the UK, top 10 in the US, a track that you still hear regularly today. How does it make you feel when you hear that song on the radio all these years later? Ah, uh, it's great. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's a great song. And it's uh, written by Tom's manager, by the way, co-written. Him and Les Reed wrote it. Um, Jimmy Page played on it, by the way. No way. Pagey was a huge session man in those days. Besides Page, were there any other well-known musicians you played with during that time? I did an album with John Paul Jones on bass, Tom Jones' album. And John Paul Jones and myself with the rhythm section. It was called 13 Smash Hits. I don't think it's available these days. Wow, so you played alongside one half of Led Zeppelin before they even became Led Zeppelin as we know it today. Yeah, yeah. And uh, JP was the only one who could go that da dang 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 that Motown stuff and all that, you know. So you go from Tom Jones to a band by the name of Tomorrow, fronted by an Australian blonde babe by the name of Olivia Newton-John. Did you ever record or tour with her? Well, that I, I don't think, uh, we never did a show with Livy. It was a film thing, and it lasted about six to nine months. That was it. Um, and it was a nice little earner, as we say in Britain <laughs> at the time. You've had this amazing career as a drummer. It's almost like looking on the back of a baseball card and seeing this player who's been with almost every team and with great success. Manfred Mann's Earth Band, Asia, Gary Moore, Uriah Heep, Michael Schenker, Gary Newman, David Gilmour, and then you're reunited with session buddy Jimmy Page and Bad Company vocalist Paul Rogers and form the supergroup The Firm. 
all this and before ACDC, just incredible. All these things, by the way, are fantastic experiences. You can imagine my buzz, you know, walking on stage with David Gilmore or Jimmy Page or Paul Rogers or, you know, I'm leaving people out, you know, Tom Jones, you know. So you're playing with all these great rock bands, touring around the world, but where does your exposure to ACDC come into play? When was the first time you actually heard the band? Was it Let There Be Rock or Power Age or, or Highway to Hell? I think that was the first thing I heard, Highway to Hell. And then they did Touch Too Much, which is, I, I said when I joined the band, I said, uh, oh, we're not doing Touch Too Much. And then Mal goes, uh, nah, you, you gotta leave something out. You know, I went, oh, well, just one of my favorite songs, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, classic for holding a tight fist on that coveted ACDC set list. Always a bone of contention with fans because, as you know, they want to hear their own favorites. You, is, you want to hear you a favorite, whether it's Night Prowler or whatever, you know. Night Prowler is actually my favorite ACDC song, which I don't think we'll ever hear live. So what was it about ACDC that struck a chord with you? It epitomized everything that I thought rock and roll should be. And the difference actually between the Liver Newton John and Tom Jones was that we started off as a rock band, leather jackets, jeans, and then Tom got into the cabaret thing. We were doing Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard stuff, and Tom could sing all that. One of the very few singers, black or white, who can do that stuff, you know? <laughs> And ACDC stuck to their guns their entire career, never wavering, avoiding trends, staying true. And Highway to Hell was probably the best example of that, even way deep into the disco and punk era. Uh, yes, Highway to Hell epitomized the whole rock and roll ethic, if you like. Speaking of never wavering, during the mid to late 80s, there was definitely some tough waters for ACDC to navigate during that heavy metal, hair metal era. Sales were slumping. Founder Malcolm Young actually sat out during the Blow Up Your Video tour to battle the bottle. And then Simon Wright, who replaced original drummer Phil Rudd back in 1983, starts to get antsy, decides to jump ship and play for Dio. So now ACDC's out a drummer during one of the most precarious times in the band's history since Bon Scott's passing. But then one fateful night, Malcolm Young attends a Gary Moore show who you were playing drums for. Now, where was that? Was that in the United States? I think it was in Britain, actually, but I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, I think it was Britain. And I think it was um, the Birmingham NEC, which is a stadium. Right. And uh, they, yeah, they came along, they saw me play. It only, I say only, it's a wonderful thing. It got me a chance to audition. It didn't get me the gig. They auditioned a hundred top players wow. who should be nameless. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> they honestly did. And people were phoning and saying, hey, don't tell the guys, but I'd like to try out with, uh, for you. And they did. Name players, you know. So I was like, when I knew that, I was blown away. I was blown away anyway. I thought I'd, I thought I'd blown it completely. What do you mean? Uh, the audition. What do you I mean? I thought, why oh. did you play that? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? Really. And I lost my way. And it was only an hour from my house. And I lost my way back to my house. 
You got lost? Yep. And uh, I phoned my then wife and I said, uh, she said, how'd you do? I said, I didn't do very good at all. It was all right, but yeah. So I, got, I finally got back to my house. I found it after all that because I was so <laughs> preoccupied with right. what I hadn't done and what I had done. And she said, oh, you did really badly. I said, yeah, I did, I did. She said, they just called to say you got the gig. <laughs> they called that night? They called before I got home. That's insane. I guess ACDC liked what they heard. What did you audition with? Was it at least tracks that you knew, part of your repertoire or songs that you, that you had in mind? They, it was, uh, no, nothing that I wanted. It was uh, stuff that they, I knew what I had to learn, so I'd learned Back in Black and stuff like that, of course. Yeah. And they came up with some new stuff just to see how quick I would pick up or how well I would pick up. They weren't bothered about time. They said, you can take an hour if you want to learn this, but you know, we'll call us when you're done. So I took about 20 minutes or so and we did, uh, it was Rock Your Heart Out from The Razor's Edge. Wow. So, which is, the bass drum pattern's quite complicated. That's a very complicated kick drum opening. So uh, I had to learn that in the audition. So, but as we said earlier on, the, uh, it's down to the feel. It's the meat and potatoes that they want. They want that. And they sat looking at you, by the way. They were, they were, they were this far away from me. <laughs> That's not intimidating at all. <laughs> no. You've got Angus and Mal sitting there like this. And they were like this. <laughs> oh, man. That's a little menacing. Yeah. It's a little bit. Uh, okay, I'm going to play now. So you got the gig. Congratulations, by the way. What was this tribe of guys like once you were in? Can you shed some insight as to what it's actually like to be in this institution known as ACDC? Uh, it's very low-key. They're, they're very low-key people. Um, there's, like, for instance, after a gig, nobody says a word. It's not like, great gig, or rotten gig. Why did you play that in the third bar of the second song? There's none of that. It's like... Nothing is said. That's a little odd, right? Or is that all part of their successful formula? It's actually, when you think about it, it's not bad at all. Because you get recrimination sometimes, you know? Yeah. Oh, you screwed up the ending of that, you know? So ACDC is like a well-oiled machine, almost business-like. Yeah, but nothing ever went wrong. Never once. People said, people asked me, what did you do when things went wrong? Nothing ever went wrong. Never once on any show. You've played with so many musicians in your vast career, sitting in that engine room, keeping time. What was it like playing in the pocket with a band like ACDC? Mal is the rhythm king. You know, he's got to be the greatest rhythm guitarist ever born, you know. And yeah. that's not just my opinion. That's many other people's. Absolutely. Including Angus. <laughs> But getting behind the kit for ACDC is not necessarily an easy task because it's not what you play, it's what you don't play that makes all the difference with a band like ACDC. How much were you able to make these songs a part of the Chris Slade fabric? You always make it your own. It might be the same figure that somebody played before you. Um, I'm trying to think of the quote, but somebody said... My, my quote is, the way I see it, you, you have to make it spontaneous. Everything you do must be spontaneous, even if it's the same thing. Oh, there was a jazz 
player. I've forgotten who it was. I think it might have been Shelley Mann. And he said, we never played the same thing once. (laughs) (laughs) Your first studio album with the band was The Razor's Edge with the late Bruce Fairburn producing, which is also the first time the boys recorded in Vancouver, correct? Yes, that's where Bruce Fairburn produced it. We did do some things in, um, in Dublin, Ireland, for uh, a month or so, actually, I think, if I remember correctly. Then we went to Vancouver. And the first single off that album becomes a landmark song for the band and quite possibly career-cementing track in Thunderstruck. First off, you're playing on that song is absolutely phenomenal. It's almost like you brought some new thunder to the band and it sounds so big. Do you consider Thunderstruck your signature song? It was hugely successful. Um, I was very surprised, it still is. I, I th- you would know better than me, but I think it's like the second best after Back in Black for sales, that is, I mean, I think so. At any time, was there ever any pressure to fill the shoes of previous drummers, Phil Rudd or Simon Wright? I just, I just play me, you know? You can't fake it. I can't think I want to play like Phil or Simon Wright, you know? Um, you can't do that. You just have to play you. And they know that. I mean, the guys know that I, I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to try to be Phil Rudd. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, but I naturally play with a feel. Uh, I stole my backbeat, actually, from Steve Ferroni in the early 70s. He was with the Average White Band then, and I sat next to him. I, I stood next, this far away, on a show with the Average, I was in, I was in Manfred Mann's Earth Band then, and we were on the same bill, and I sat this far away from Steve, and I went, there's nowhere else that, snare beat can go except where he's putting it right now. So, and musicians do that, you know, you steal good licks, you steal all sorts of things like that. Use them and make them your own. So that's where the feel comes from. Uh, I did a session a few years back in the Pro Tools and the producer said, you know, I had to move all your snare beats to, you were way behind the beat and I had to move them all onto the beat. Why did you do that? I said, it's something you would never understand. It's called feel. <laughs> I went, bye. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Because that's what it's all about. It's, it's that. Uh, the Americans, I think, call it a lazy backbeat. Yeah. And uh, funny enough, a lot of British drummers do it. I don't want to get too sidetracked, which is tough with your vast career, but you mentioned playing for Manfred Mann. I've got to ask, whose idea was it to cover Bruce Springsteen's Blinded by the Light? It's such a phenomenal version. Uh, Manfred's and he did the arrangement. I put a lot of production ideas into that, actually. Manfred will say that. He'll admit to that. <laughs> <laughs> in that, there was um, chopsticks. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, 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 ding. I love ding. that part. I said, I'll play that. Manfred said, no, I'll play it. <laughs> 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 I'm a big fan of Springsteen. Yeah, That was his first hit record ever, by the way. Your cover of Blinded was Springsteen's first big hit? Yeah. Blinded by the Light, our Blinded by the Light. Wow. Greetings from Raspberry Park had gone down the tubes. And uh, this guy, I'll explain in a minute, but this guy gave us the album and said, this guy is great. He gave it to one to each of us, one to each of the band. And he said, this guy is great, check it out. And, you know, we thought it was great, really. And um, 
that album went down the tubes, completely disappeared without trace. And Manfred then, a few months later, came up with this arrangement of Blinded by the Light. And we turned it down to start with. Uh, and then he changed it a little bit and we went, that's fantastic, let's do that. Because, you know, it was consensus amongst the band. And the guy who gave us that album, he was a journalist from New York, right? And his name was John Landau. And he is still the manager now of Springsteen. Wow. But he was a journalist then. He wasn't Springsteen's manager. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. What were the crowds like playing with ACDC live compared to other bands you've joined on stage in the past? Well, actually, ACDC these days, you get everything from grandfathers to, you know, to 10-year-olds coming, you know, uh, which is amazing. And that's the generation they span. You know, they actually, their appeal goes right through every generation. That's true. It started with me as a teenager, with my siblings, then my wife, and then my kids, and so on and so on. ACDC truly are that generational band. And what was it like touring with ACDC, which was captured brilliantly on the ACDC Live LP? I caught that band maybe three times on the Razor's Edge tour, but that seemed to go on forever around the world. It must have been absolutely grueling. Sometimes. Touring is, you're on the bus and, you know, and it is the bus, not the plane. Yeah. Um, me, like uh, Angus, likes to stay on the ground, so do I. Uh, I'm not afraid to fly in, I will if I have to, but if I can drive somewhere, I'd rather drive. Right. For me, as a fan watching you play live, it felt as though you gave the guys a real jolt of energy. Every song seemed to be played just a little bit faster, and I think it was actually Angus who once said that you were the best musician in the band. I think that was a bit of a backhanded compliment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Did Angus actually say that to you? No, he didn't say it to me. No, he said it in an interview. He forgets that he's a great musician too, if you see what I mean. He likes that bluesy, earthy, down-to-earth thing, you know? And to him, anybody can go uh, and, and shred, maybe. Uh, he'd be going, oh, you know, that's just shredding. He sort of um, denigrates technique, if you like, if that's the right word. And he forgets he's a great player. Yeah, not known for criticizing others. I do remember Angus chopping down Eddie Van Halen once in an article, basically saying he was a great player and all, but he's just up there finger tapping. They toured together, the two bands, and he said, yeah, you know, he, he came off... Uh, what do you know? He came off to the end of that tour and he was tapping. <laughs> <laughs> you were also a part of some of the biggest shows in not just the band's history, but rock and roll history, captured on ACDC's live recording during the Razor's Edge tour in Glasgow, Edmonton, Dublin, Birmingham, and the Donington and Moscow Monsters of Rock shows. Tell us a little bit about those experiences. Yeah, it was a, we told a million people. Incredible. Births, marriages and deaths. You know, you get a million people together, you're going to have all that stuff going on. And I remember the guards were really rough. Baseball bats and all sorts. Ah, oh, it was terrible. It's all on documentary. To see that many people come together to witness a single band play rock and roll was beyond words. Why do you think those fans in Moscow who had been neglected music for so long 
chose ACDC? Amazing compliment. They asked, uh, you know, who do you want? The Stones, Springsteen, and they all went, ACDC. Why do you think that is globally? What's the universal appeal of ACDC? It's the nitty gritty. And their geniuses, they keep it simple. It, and as I said, it, it sounds simple, but it isn't as simple as it sounds. Um, and it's the honesty of it, I think. I think that, I never thought about it like that, but it's the, it's the honesty. And they keep it very street. Um, they don't wear flash clothes, they don't drive flash cars, even though they could afford to. <laughs> uh, they keep everything very simple in their lives and they keep their music simple and genuine. Um, and you have to feel it, you have to feel it internally. And I think it goes across to everybody, whether you're Lithuanian or, you know, LA and... <laughs> Um, it'll, it'll hit you. And if it hits you, you're not going to forget it. Very well said. Did you ever feel like you were responsible for giving ACDC a kick in the ass when they needed one? I hope so. When the Razor's Edge hit, it seemed like you were responsible for shifting the band into high gear. The drum sound was like a freight train. Well, thanks. And that's no disrespect to Phil whatsoever. We love Phil, always will. No, he's a great player. But your style seemed to be right on time, whereas Phil's MO is to play more behind the beat with a little swing to it. Right. I tend to, um, people have pointed out to me about the difference between, say, uh, Live at Donington, which I played on, and other live stuff, you know. And uh, they go, look, look. And I go, oh, okay. All right. If you see that, that's fine. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite ACDC songs is a track that you played on called Big Gun off the soundtrack for the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Last Action Hero. All right which was produced by longtime fan Rick Rubin. It was with Rick Rubin, yeah. Any memories from that session you'd like to share? There was this one track and it was speeding up. Oh, well, we're playing away and it was losing the feel and Mal goes, you know, it, it's not feeling right, Mal Angus. It's, it's not feeling right there, you know. What are you playing? I'm playing this. Well, it's, uh, it's just not feeling right. And I was playing to a click, which is very, very unusual. Damn click tracks. Very unusual, but they had some things already down. So I was playing along to that and they were trying to put some things over the top. It's not feeling right, it's not feeling right. Okay. So I said, let me listen to the click. What do you, and the engineer goes, what do you want to listen to the click for? It's electronic. I go, I just want to listen to the click. And I said, click speeding up there. It can't speed up, it's electronic. So 20 minutes later after a huge heated argument, I said, it's speeding up, it starts speeding up there, and I'm following the click, and the guitars are trying to follow me, and they can't. The click is speeding up. No, it's not. Look, just check it, okay? He said, came back five minutes later, and said, I'm sorry, it's where I spliced the tape. <laughs> so you have bat ears, basically, when it comes to the beat. Well, for tempos and timing, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm blessed or cursed with perfect tempo. You know, some people have a perfect pitch. Um, on my good days, I've got perfect tempo. 
You also appeared in the Big Gun video shot in a hangar in L.A., which features none other than the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. What was it like seeing him dressed in a schoolboy uniform? Ah, that was funny. He's quite a funny guy, actually. Is he? Yeah, he tells jokes and does funny things, you know. And what was that whole day like? ACDC were around this little table mm -hmm. and all the, the crew guys, I mean, the, the film crew guys, this is, we're all sitting there, we're having lunch and this Hummer comes in. <laughs> so uh, we were right on the corner and there was another table right next to us. So he drives up in his Hummer and he drives over to the tables. And he drives to that table and he's pushing the table with the edge of the hammer. <laughs> this table is <laughs> <just> next to us. <laughs> That's great. With a, with a big, you know, big cigar. Yeah. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a funny guy. He was just great, you know, he was good. And uh, he was as big as I thought he was. Yeah, especially around ACDC. Oh, yeah, to see him and Angus together. You know, Schwarzenegger's about 6'3", is he, or something like that? Somewhere around there, I think. Yeah. And like this, you know. And Angus is half that size. <laughs> <laughs> I'm half that size. <laughs> and how did the band like being associated with the soundtrack in the film Last Action Hero? Um, I don't think they cared much for the movie or, or the movies in particular, although Angus is a big movie buff. It's too bad Big Gun, the last studio track you've ever played on with ACDC, doesn't get any love as a setlist contender live because it truly is a killer riff. They played the riff to me uh, flying over the Atlantic, and I forget. I think I was sitting next to Brian, and the guys, were, uh, Angus and Mal were behind. And they played this thing, and I went, ah, it's a great riff, because it is a fantastic riff. Sort of Peter Gunn type riff, you know. And, but they had a whole other slant in it. I thought it was great, tremendous. And uh, I remember in front of us, Michael Caine and his wife were sitting in front of us and they were watching a movie and he was watching an Australian movie called um, Strictly Ballroom. And he was cracking up at this movie, I don't know if it was Michael Caine. <laughs> and I went, keep the noise down, will you, Michael? <laughs> So following that excellent one-off track with Big Gun, you head into rehearsals with the band to record Ball Breaker, and then Phil Rudd, ACDC's original drummer, who parted ways with the band for going on 15 years or so. Yeah, I think it was 12, actually. Yeah. I always say I only got to wait 12 years, I can get, get my gig back. <laughs> so you've completed all the drum tracks for Ball Breaker, and then Phil calls up Malcolm and asks if he can rejoin the band and sit behind the drum kit once again. Is, is that basically what happened? It was basically that, yeah. My, my answer was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, goodbye. And that was the, that's the way it went down. After that devastating decision, you still kept in touch with some of the band members? With Brian and Cliff, yeah, I do. They're very ordinary guys. I mean, people wonder what it's like inside there. It's actually, in rock and roll terms, it's quite boring. In rock and roll terms. It's very business-like, it's very professional. Bang, do your gig, get on with it. With a song like Thunderstruck, 
you were able to leave this indelible impression for generations to come, which can be heard in stadiums, arenas, parades, movies, advertising. They use it in the army as well, by the way. Oh, right, of course. When I was in Afghanistan, the special forces guys came up and said, we use it for training, especially for jumping, especially parachute jumping, to get everybody fired up. And it's specifically thunderstruck. We all know why, right, Chris? It's, it's the drums. Do I think it's the drums? I hope it is. It's the whole thing. You know, as I said earlier on, the, it's the jigsaw that's ACDC. You take one thing away and it won't sound the same. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, it is the jigsaw. Yeah, it does fire up a lot of people. And we used to open with that. We used to open with that track. Now, how many people do you know can open their show with their latest hit and then go on to tear the place apart. That's right. I remember you rising up from the stage floor in the pitch dark with nothing but the sound of your hi-hat and rolling thunder, which I thought was a fantastic addition to that song. Kind of wish they had used it, the sound of thunder on the actual single, not unlike the tolling of Hell's Bells or the firing cannons. Believe it or not, that was my idea. Was it really your idea? Yeah, I swear to God, yeah. He said, I thought, I said to the guys, with Thunderstruck, I said, I thought you would have used um, thunder to open the track, you know, like a thunderstorm to open the track. And they both went, they didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's so them. You hear those little cues and it becomes an ominous character within the song. Yeah. To me, it's very, um, what is the word? Generic, maybe? I don't know. Or organic, is, I like. You know, it's thunder. I did say that to Greg the other day. I was like, why don't they use the rolling thunder sound in the beginning of Thunderstruck? Yeah. See, I love little things like that, production things like that. And to me, uh, it would have been obvious to use that. But, uh, but I'm glad they used the, um, used the idea, you know, and they use it on the live show and live album and everything. Great. There's actually a great photo of all three ACDC drummers, Phil Rudd, Simon Wright, and yourself, backstage at the Forum, which is a really cool shot. Did you ever think you'd be a part of that ACDC family? Funny enough, I was on tour with David Gilmore and Mick Ralphs. And I woke up one morning on the bus and they had this track play and I went, what is that? And they said, and of course this was 60, uh, sorry, this was 84. And I said, what is that? He said, uh, oh, it's, it's Back in Black album, ACDC. I went, oh, sounds great, sounds fantastic. And Mick Ralph's from Bad Company, right? Guitarist, Bad Company. And he goes, that'd be a great gig for you, Slade. Talk about being prophetic. I'll never forget him saying that. I saw him just a few weeks ago, Mick, and he said, yeah, I remember saying that. That'd be a great gig for you, Slade. So six years later, I was in the band. That's amazing. Here's an important question. Sitting up high on the drum riser and seeing Angus go through his striptease routine every night right in front of you, were there some moments that you maybe saw a little too much? Uh, yes, some nights. <laughs> TMI, TMI. <laughs> what makes ACDC so appealing across so many diverse cultural backgrounds around the globe? It's that street thing. It is that street thing and the emotion, that it's, it's pure rock and roll. Yeah. It's stripped down to its basic. Uh, it's a rock band rocking. 
And they're great songs, you know, like heavy metal. No, it ain't. Not even Led Zeppelin are heavy metal, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's rock songs with great hooks. Yeah. You know, and like shook me all night long. What a great record, you know? Mm. <laughs> right. Back in black, Mal took that along to Angus and went, this has been driving me crazy, you know? Is it any good or should we just dump it? You know, gang, get a gang, get a gang. Yeah, it might be all right, you know? It might be all right, Malcolm, we'll try it. <laughs> Chris Slade, thank you so much for bringing the thunder to ACDC, for stepping in to help keep this magical band running right along the track, and for being such a great guy. ACDC Beyond the Thunder leaves you with our final question, which we end all of our shows with. If you had one word to describe this band called ACDC, what would it be? Genius. Absolute genius. Rock and roll genius. Oh, that's three words. <laughs> Four words. Oh, my God. Chris, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Brand ambassador and marketing guru, Gino Bona. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Gino Bona, Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast, all rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Shazbot. Nanu Nanu.